Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr. Brian Donohoe. Hey, number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, before listing my engagements, I'm sure that the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to the soldiers who have lost their lives in Afghanistan since the House last met. They are from 3-3 Engineer Regiment Explosive Ordnance Disposal, Sapper David Watson, from 2nd Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment, Captain Simon Hornby, from 1st Battalion, the Royal Anglican Regiment, Private Robert Hayes, from the Parachute Regiment, Lance Corporal Tommy Brown, from 3rd Battalion, the Rifles, Lance Corporal Christopher Roney, Rifleman Aidan Howe, and from 4th Regiment, Royal Military Police, Lance Corporal Michael Pritchard. Our thoughts are with the families and friends who can be rightly proud of the courage, the dedication, the bravery, and the sacrifice that has been shown by these men, and that sacrifice will never be forgotten. We have been reminded once again since the House last met that there are those who seek to harm us with terrorist incidents. We must remain vigilant and ever grateful to all those serving in Afghanistan and around the world working for the safety of the British people. Mr. Speaker, I know the House will also want me uh, to join uh, in sending our condolences to the wife and children of David Taylor, who sadly died in Boxing Day. He was a tremendous constituency member of Parliament who thoroughly deserved the accolade of backbencher of the year for his tireless work for the people of Northwest Leicestershire. He will be greatly missed not only by his family who are here in the House today, but by colleagues here in Westminster and by all his constituents. Mr Speaker, this morning I have meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I shall have further meetings later today. Mr Brian Donohoe. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I would, of course, endorse all that my my right honourable friend says about those who have given the, the sacrifice of dying for the country fighting in Afghanistan. I'd also want to say something about those who have died as a result of taking heroin in the west of Scotland, all harvested in Afghanistan. And also we'd want to pay tribute to the honourable friend, my honourable friend and comrade, uh, David Taylor, who served in this house assiduously and gave his all in the constituency as well. If I may, Mr Speaker, uh, turn to the question... Uh, can my right honourable friend give us an update on the situation regarding the terrorist incident that took place on the plane travelling between Schiphol and Amsterdam and Detroit? I, I think the whole House will echo what he says about the damage that is done in our country by drugs that come from Afghanistan. I'd be very happy to meet him to talk about these issues. Now, since the Christmas Day incident in uh, Detroit... We have, as the Home Secretary reported to this House yesterday, uh, taken a number of actions in key areas. On aviation security, the first of a new generation of full-body scanners will be in operation at Heathrow within a few weeks, and then over time in airports across the United Kingdom. While the person who was involved in the Detroit incident was refused a visa and was not on a watch list, it was on our watch list, we are nevertheless reviewing and enhancing our watch list arrangements And given the changing security nature, I've asked the Cabinet Secretary to ensure that any lessons learnt from recent events uh, should be considered and whether we can further and better coordinate and integrate the work of the intelligence services uh, and the service that is available to us from them. 
Mr David Cameron. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the seven British servicemen who have lost their lives since the last Prime Minister's questions? Private Robert Hayes, Sapper David Watson, Rifleman Aidan Howell, Lance Corporal Tommy Brown, Lance Corporal Christopher Roney, Lance Corporal Michael Pritchard and Corporal Simon Hornby. They died serving our country and we must always honour their memory and look after their families. I also join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to David Taylor and his contribution to public service. We too send our condolences to his wife and children. He was diligent, decent and determined. As one obituary put it, I thought brilliantly, he was that rare thing amongst politicians, someone who was liked and admired equally by his constituents, his parliamentary colleagues and his political opponents. And he will be sadly missed. This year, the government will have to borrow £178 billion. Yesterday, one of the largest holders of government debt warned that British debt is likely to be downgraded. The OECD, the CBI and the Bank of England have all warned there is no proper plan to deal with this deficit. Why does the Prime Minister think that all these people take that view? First of all, Mr Speaker, let, let us put this in context. That the debt that the debt of every country has risen as a result of a global financial recession. And debt in Britain is actually lower as a percentage of national income than America, it's lower than France and Germany, it's lower than Italy and Japan, it's lower than the average for the euro area. So every country faces the difficulty of taking its country out of recession while at the same time having to develop a deficit reduction plan. I tell him, first of all, we will not stop the fiscal stimulus before we are out of recession. And we will not not take his advice and leave the economy without the support that is necessary. And if we had taken his advice, many thousands more would be unemployed and many thousand businesses would be lost. But what we have published is a deficit reduction plan. Now, let me just... let, Let me... Yes... It includes raising the top rate of tax. I assume he now supports that. It it, it raises national insurance so that we can fund our health and public services. I assume that he has got to consider that as well. It does not include cutting inheritance tax and costing $1.5 for the 3,000 richest families in the country. It includes cuts in some of the major departments, but it includes defending the frontline services of health, of education and policing. And I must say, Mr Speaker, for him to ask me questions about public spending this week, when he said it was the year of change, he changed his policy in the morning, he changed his policy in the afternoon, and he changed his policy in the evening. The Prime Minister talks about the context. The context is the biggest budget deficit of any advanced economy in the world. Let us be clear about what these people say about the government's plans. The CBI say the government's plans are too little too late. The Governor of the Bank of England says there is no credible plan. The OECD say more ambitious plans would strengthen the recovery. Howard Davis, the man the Prime Minister appointed as the head of the Financial Services Authority, said this. The loss of confidence in the government's ability to get the public finances back under control is the major risk facing this country. And he said that after the utterly feeble pre-budget report. So let me ask him again, why does he think all of these people think his plans are so feeble? 
Mr Speaker, the Governor of the Bank of England, the very significant policy actions taken in recent months will stimulate a recovery in demand, output and employment. The IMF, the UK has shown a lot of leadership. The the UK... That is is the Managing Director of the IMF. The UK authorities' policy response to the deep recession has been bold and wild-ranging. The aggressive actions by the authorities have been successful in containing the crisis and averting a systemic breakdown. I could go through the the OECD, the fiscal stimulus is cushioned the downturn. Mr Speaker, it comes down to this. If we had taken his advice, there would be no action and unemployment would have risen much faster. If we had taken his advice, the 200,000 small businesses who have benefited would not have benefited. If we had taken his advice, we'd be back to the 90s mortgage misery with repossession. Every decision on recession and recovery, that party got wrong. The fact is, the fact is, the fact is, this Chancellor is now taking our advice. He said you can only get growth when you deal with the deficit. The Prime Minister Minister tells us about his Fiscal Responsibility Act. It is completely feeble. What is required is not an act of Parliament, but an act of political will. The man that the Prime Minister appointed to the Bank of England said this about Fiscal Responsibility Acts. They are, he said, acts of the fiscally irresponsible to con the public. Isn't isn't the reason for the lack of faith in the government's plans that the Prime Minister personally is so incapable of admitting what everyone knows to be true that there is a need for cuts to be made? On Sunday, on Sunday, he said... That the public, he said that public spending will rise by 0.8% in real terms each year. Given that everybody knows that cuts in departmental spending are necessary, wasn't that just completely disingenuous? Yeah. Mr Speaker, the person who was misleading the public was the right honourable gentleman on Monday about married couples allowance. He said on Monday morning one thing, on Monday afternoon something different, on Monday evening something different, and then the member who floated the policy... The former leader of the Conservative Party said he had a private assurance of 4.9 billion being spent. Now, Mr. Speaker, if he wishes to reduce the deficit, presumably he doesn't want to spend 4.9 billion pounds on a married couple's allowance. If he wishes to reduce the deficit, presumably he will go ahead with the national insurance tax rise that we are proposing. If he wishes to reduce the deficit, he won't go ahead with his inheritance tax proposal, which he now says is his only pledge. We are reducing the deficit with a plan that includes tax rises, departmental cuts and protecting the frontline services. The Conservatives would be cutting education services, they'd be cutting police services, they'd be cutting the main service in the country. Their policies are a change, a change back to the 1980s of economic... Order. Can I just say to members on both sides, we're not on the hustings now. Mr David Cameron. I wish we were. I wish this Prime Minister had the courage to call the election and we could get on with it. I have to say, Mr Speaker, what a lot of desperate rubbish. I thought... I thought... I thought he might mention marriage. So let me say this to him. The difference between me and the Prime Minister is this. When I lean across and say, I love you, darling, I really mean it. (laughs) The only... (laughs) 
Di. The only, the only divorce that's taken place is between this Prime Minister and reality. Let's take his claim. Let's take his claim that spending is going up by 0.8%. Isn't the only way he's able to make that is to include, into, is to exclude capital spending, which he's actually cutting in half? Isn't that completely disingenuous? Mr. Thing, for him to talk about love and marriage today, when he is the person who cannot give a straight answer on the married couples' allowance, whether he can't say I do or I don't when it comes to the married couples' allowance. And Mr. Speaker. As for, as, as for public, as for public, as, as for public, will he give us an answer, a straight answer now? Is his deficit reduction plan, including 4.9 billion to be spent on the married couples' allowance, 1.5 billion to be spent on inheritance tax, not going ahead with the national insurance rise? That's why everybody says there's a 34 billion gap in his proposals. He cannot go round the country promising everything to everyone. He's got to face up to the facts. His policies are only fit for opposition, not for government. I have to say, I have to say to the Prime Minister, if he wants to turn this around and make it Prime Minister's questions, get on and call the election. Then there'll be all the time in the world to kiss and make up. Because the fact is, this government is now deeply divided. Everyone knows the Chancellor wanted to reduce the deficit more quickly. Everyone knows the Business Secretary goes around the country privately attacking the PBR as a complete failure. And perhaps the Prime Minister could name one backbencher on the Labour side who stood up and spoke for his bill last night. Not a single one. Doesn't he understand? Not one. Doesn't he understand that a divided party without a proper plan is putting Britain's recovery at risk? Isn't that the height of irresponsibility? And why is he always incapable of doing the right thing? Mr Speaker, let me just give another example of the energy gentleman. Last night, last night, last night he was asked, are you committed to educational maintenance allowances? What was his answer? Let's just say I'm not uncommitted to it. He said, he then said, well, we're in a state of quite severe flux on this whole area. So I can't give you a straight answer. Now, is this an opposition party ready for government? They should go back to the drawing board and think again. The fact is, the appalling state of the public finances and the Prime Minister's complete inability to have a proper plan show the great truth of British politics. He has had two years to demonstrate some leadership and he's completely failed to do so. He can't convince business or the financial markets. He can't even convince his own Chancellor. Is it any wonder that he ekes out his time as an unelected leader completely incapable of convincing the country? He's going to have to do better than that. And he's going, to have, he's going to have to answer some questions on policy sometime. He got it wrong on the nationalisation of Northern Rock. He got it wrong on the fiscal stimulus for the recovery. He got it wrong on helping the unemployed. He got it wrong on helping homeowners. He got it wrong on small businesses. He got every issue of the recession wrong. Nobody will trust him, not just on married couples allowance, but nobody will trust him on the economy at all.
a year on from the devastating conflict in Gaza, which left 1,400 Palestinians dead, the siege continues. Humanitarian relief is hard to come by and Gaza lies shattered. Although there were undoubtedly war crimes on both sides, does my right honourable friend agree with me that what is now happening is the collective punishment of a million people? And will he now make urgent representations to ease the siege on Gaza as a critical step towards a peace settlement? My, my friend is absolutely right, and she speaks for many people on this. We must not forget the people of Gaza. I have raised with Prime Minister Netanyahu the speed at which aid and humanitarian assistance can get into Gaza. We are pressing the Israeli government to do more that they can to get more aid in, and I will look at exactly the points that she has made and see what more we can do in this new year. In the end, this will require a political settlement between Israel and the Palestinian state, which gives Israel security and Palestine a viable economic state that it can manage. But in the meantime, we must avoid unnecessary suffering. Mr Nick Clegg. I would also like to add my own expressions of uh, profound sympathy and condolence to the family and friends of the brave British soldiers who lost their lives serving in Afghanistan since the House last sat. Uh, Captain Simon Hornby... Lance Corporal Michael Pritchard, Lance Corporal Christopher Roney, Lance Corporal Tommy Brown, Rifleman Aidan Howell, Sapper David Watson, and Private Robert Hayes. And also, I would like to pay my own tribute to uh, David Taylor, who sadly died during the Christmas recess. I was once one of the MEPs for his area, and he had a reputation then, and always has, as an outstanding constituency MP, and as someone who always, always spoke his own mind. Uh, My heart goes out to his wife, Pam, and his four daughters. Mr Speaker, last weekend, the Prime Minister said that he was all in favour of aspirational. Could he explain to us exactly what is aspirational about a tax system which he has created, where the poorest 20% pay more in from their income in tax than the richest 20%? Yeah. It's because of all these things that we introduced the tax credit system. The tax credit system is the means by which we take people out of poverty, we reward work for people who are in work, and for people who pay income tax, it removes their liability by giving them tax credits instead. It is the means by which we bring greater justice, take people out of poverty and make work pay, and I hope he would continue to support the tax credit system, which is an essential part of our tax and benefit system in this country. Nick Clegg talks about justice. He hasn't delivered justice or fairness in the tax system. He's the one who scrapped the 10p tax rate. It's his rules, it's his rules which allow a city banker to pay less tax on their capital gains than their cleaner does on their wages. He's about to hit millions of average earners with higher national insurance uh, bills. What is the fairness? Where is the, where is the aspiration in any any of that. The the aspiration is helping people into jobs, giving people the chance to earn a decent living and making sure that the tax system is fair. So presumably he will now support our 50% tax on bonuses of the banks. He will support raising the top rate of tax to 50%. He will support removing the pension tax reliefs that we are doing as very much part of the deficit reduction plan. What we have tried to do is to say that in these difficult times, as we make changes, then the burden has got to be shared fairly, and that means those with the broadest shoulders have got to pay more. I hope he will agree with that. Joan Wally. personal tribute to David Taylor, Mr Speaker. Can I bring to the um, attention of my right honourable friend the um, concern that I have about apprentices aged over 26 
in SoCal Trent-Further Education College who are in urgent talks to secure the um, funding that they need to continue their training. In the light of the re recent National Audit Office report into former coal mining areas, will he do all he can through his best offices to make sure that the Learning and Skills <coughs> Council, the Business Innovation and Skills Department and the Regional Development Agency and DWP will work closely with Stoke Trent College to find an urgent solution so that all apprentices can get full funding? It's our intention that even in these uh, difficult uh, times, when companies may not be in a position to keep on apprentices, that we will find alternative uh, sources of employment for them uh, and uh, make sure that the colleges can continue to train them. So I will look precisely at the very issue that you raise. As far as the Coalfields Regeneration Programme is concerned, the National Audit uh, Office recommendations have been acted on. Uh, funding from Coalfields uh, Regeneration Programme has already been allocated. Stoke and Trent has received £3 million and over half a million of that has been committed to projects that will train in individuals. So I hope that she will find that some of the answer is found in the decisions that have already been made, but I will specifically look at the apprentices question. Look, there were 70,000 apprentices in 1997. There are a quarter of a million now. No government has done more to revive the apprenticeship, and we are not going to let apprenticeships fall during this recession. Andrew Pelling. With 29% of jobs in Croydon in the public sector, I'm very worried about government plans to move public sector jobs out of the south-east. The Chancellor, in response to a question at uh, the previous time in the House, very kindly said there might be compensatory steps. Does the Prime Minister have any positive views about what such compensatory steps might be? Yeah, I, I do understand the Immigration Department in Croydon in its constituency. Uh, obviously, what we are uh, looking at is how we can relocate some jobs uh, out of the southeast in a way that will both save money and spread employment across the country. Uh, the Lions Review suggested 20,000 jobs be relocated. That has already happened, and we're looking at what more we can do. But I think he will also understand that the work of the London Development Agency and the work that is done in London is a means by which we ensure that there is creation of jobs in London, and we are always looking at what we can do uh, to create more jobs uh, in this capital city. Andrew Dismore. Tell my right honourable friend that cancer treatment waits have been effectively eliminated for my constituents due to our NHS doctors and nurses meeting the exacting cancer care targets. Today, Macmillan Cancer Support reported that because of the excellent news of more people surviving cancer, when their treatment ends, patients are more prone to health problems and need practical advice. What can my right honourable friend do to ensure that they get this advice and help? Yeah. The, the Macmillan uh, work is something that is very special in our country and very much appreciated. I believe that the advances that we are making in cancer care, particularly if people uh, are detected early and particularly if people are able to go through the screening process, means that lots of lives that would otherwise be lost are being saved. But I appreciate there is aftercare and there is considerable uh, aftercare necessary even after many years, and I'm determined that we continue to support it. I would have to say, though, that the best way that we can help deal with the cancer problems in our country is to make sure we do not lose the two-week guarantee that you can see a specialist uh, Im immediately and to move towards a one-week guarantee that you will be diagnosed and given the answers within only seven days. Now, that requires money. It requires determination to spend the money in the right place. We are determined to do it. I hope no party seeks to abolish that. Ben Wallace. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given that technology is vital in allowing us to stay one step ahead of the terrorist threat, why has the government cut spending on defence research by 23% over the last three years? Isn't grasping at a couple of scanners and yet another review a little too little too late? 
Yes, Mr. Speaker, we, we have increased debt spending on security from a billion in 2001 to more than three billion. And we have incre- increased counterterrorism capability massively in this country as a result of making the right decisions. We have doubled the number of security staff. We have doubled the number of police that are associated with counterterrorism work. We are introducing the e-border system, which is a means by which we can catch those people who are coming into this country. I don't think any government has done more to increase the counterterrorism capability in this country. And it's right, because our first duty is the security of our citizens. Yeah. Griffith. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Given the somewhat disappointing finish to the Copenhagen conference, what action can my right honourable friend tell us he will be taking in order to keep the momentum up on this absolutely vital task of tackling climate change? Mr Speaker, for the first uh, time, uh, the world was able to agree that we should not uh, have uh, a uh, climate change policy that didn't address the problems of rising uh, temperatures. Uh, and the 2% limit was agreed by all countries. Uh, we also have agreement that countries will notify what they will do by 2020, and they've got to do so by January the 31st. And we are obviously pressing for countries to be in a position where they can reduce the amount of gigatons uh, in carbon and greenhouse gas emissions from about the mid-50s in 2020 to the mid-40s. Uh, and there has been greater transparency achieved with every country agreeing to report what they are doing. But we have not yet got the international treaty that we need and we have not yet got the announcement from all countries that they support the 50% reduction by, 50, by 2050. That is work that is still to be done, and I agree with her that we must now talk to all those countries that were reluctant to, to come into these uh, uh, talks with a view of getting a treaty to persuade them that a treaty is necessary. I think she'll see further announcements in the next few days about what we're going to do. And Winterton. Mr Speaker, bearing in mind the failure of Copenhagen and the current weather cycle, which clearly indicates a a cooling trend, (laughs) will the Prime Minister... Order. The more noise, the less progress we make. I want to reach other backbenchers. And Winterton. Will the Prime Minister reconsider the proposed wasteful expenditure of £100 billion on offshore wind farms, which will be incapable of delivering sufficient energy, but will result in excessively exorbitant charges for electricity users? Mr Speaker, the idea the Conservative Party could take a lead on climate change when they can't even convince their own bank benches. What is, what is necessary. Mr Speaker, they, they, they can't make up the mind about nuclear. Now on offshore wind, we are the leading power in the world for offshore wind. We will soon be making announcements that will make it clear that massive numbers of jobs will come as a result of offshore wind. It is the right policy if we're going to have 15% renewables by 2020. I cannot understand where the Conservative energy policy comes from if they take out nuclear and they take out offshore wind, and every Conservative local authority is opposing onshore wind as well. They have no policy whatsoever. David Anderson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It's now 27 months since people suffering from plural plaques were denied compensation by a decision of the House of Lords. Can I ask the Prime Minister what work is being done across the whole of government to redress this and when can we expect some progress? 
as, as he knows, there were meetings of legal advisers took place in the last, uh, the last few weeks. I'm meeting a group of MPs, and I think he is part of it in the next week. I hope to get a resolution to what is uh, a very dreadful uh, disease, asbestosis, and what we can do about it, and also to deal with the problem that arises from plural plagues. So Michael Spicer. Uh, now we face stagflation. What's he going to do about it? Mr. Speaker, if he is suggesting... If he's suggesting that we're going to have the levels of inflation we had in the Conservative years, he is completely wrong. Inflation, inflation is low in this country. We have kept it low for the last 12 years. The idea that the Conservative Party are now going to run a campaign saying that inflation is going to be the highest in the world is something quite ridiculous. Uh, Alison Seabeck. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given the cold weather, yesterday's announcement of the boiler scrappage scheme is particularly welcome uh, to the fuel poor in my constituency and positively welcomed by companies like Xenex, who are at the cutting edge of this technology. Can my right honourable friend confirm that not only will he promote this excellent scheme, but also encourage retrofitting, which companies like Xenex can do and do well, to reduce our carbon footprint? Mr Speaker, she's absolutely right. The, the boiler scrappage scheme will help 125,000 households and is already showing that it is popular and will cut carbon emissions. The retrofitting measures such as insulation will play an increasingly important role. And I must uh, draw people's attention also to the fact that cold weather payments are being made to those people who are affected by the cold weather right across the country in many areas, including London from January the 4th and 6.9 million payments have already been made of £25 a week. We are doing our best to help people through the difficult winter weather and we will continue to do what we can to ensure that elderly people in particular will turn up their heating and not allow themselves to suffer from the cold. Maria Miller. With the severe weather that's uh, predicted to continue for the next five days, which has particularly hit my constituency in Basingstoke badly, um, what action is the government taking now to make sure that supplies of salt and grit are going to get to where they're needed most, including the stockpiles that are held by the highways agency? She's absolutely right. I, 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 I think the whole House wants to be assured uh, that in this difficult period of weather, where some areas are being more hit than others, then those areas that need to grit the roads will have the salt that is necessary to do so and all the support that other local authorities who are not so affected and central government can give them. Uh, and I can assure her, first of all, that salt supplies have been built up as a result of uh, what we uh, discovered and what we did last year. At the same time, I can announce that uh, the, uh, there will be greater coordination of the dis distribution of salt so that those areas who need that salt will not be denied it and I hope I will be able to reassure her constituents that they will get the salt and the grit that is necessary. Mr Graham Allen. Number nine, Mr Speaker. Uh, the Leader of the House has written to representatives of the other parties on this issue. The Government is keen to proceed on a consensual basis. Mr Graham Allen. Uh, UK politics has become ever more the private playground of governments and media, and this place, Parliament, uh, an ever more tatty backdrop uh, with little independence. Uh, will the Prime Minister take the powers that he has to bring forward to our agenda, not for debate, but for decision, 
the proposals to reform this House. Will he please do that uh, in the next few weeks? I think, I think it's in all our interest to say that the, both the standard of debate in, in this House and what is discussed in this House should reflect what are the views and the values of the people of this whole country. And all of us want in this new year to make sure that the House is discussing the issues that matter to people. As far as the issue of the Select Committee report, we welcome the Select Committee report. I know he's a long-standing, uh, taken a long-standing interest in these institutional reforms. The creation of a backbench committee, of a business committee, of party ballots, all these are being looked at in detail. And the Leader of the House has made clear that we will have an opportunity to make uh, a debate on these in due course and discuss these recommendations. Mr. David Heath. Mr. Speaker, in due course. We've been waiting now for weeks. Isn't this typical of this government and this Prime Minister? He makes a big announcement on June the 10th last year that we're going to have urgent reform of the House of Commons when it comes to action. The government acts with all the dispatch of a particularly arthritic slug on its way to its own funeral. Now, will he tell us? Will he tell us? Is he still still committed to urgent action on reforming this ineffective and incompetent House, or are there people on his own bench who are stopping it happening? He gives me a great deal of hope that the consensual approach is going to work. Mr Speaker, I think he is part of the talks. The talks are taking place. The issues issues about the creation of a business committee, party ballots for select committee membership, ballots of the whole House for select committee chairmanship, these are issues that were recommended by the committee uh, that was chaired by the chairman of the Public Administration Committee. These are issues that we are now discussing. They will form the subject of a debate and decisions by this House.